Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. All right, well, my, uh, my name is Father Patrick Schultz. Uh, you probably know that because you're at my breakout, which is great. The, um, I, was telling, uh, I was telling Kelly, who just spoke, I was like, uh, it's like there's a God or something. Like, your talk perfectly, like, set up my talk, right? It's like there's, like, a Holy Spirit or something. So I also told her, she asked me if I wanted to use, like, the, the lapel mic. I was like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm Slovak and German and Irish, but my stomach and my hands and my preaching is Italian. So I get, like... I get really kind of crazy, so I need something to, like, kind of hem me in. I'm going to be knocking stuff over if I, if I try and leave this pulpit. So, all right. So I'm a priest from the Diocese of Cleveland. I'm just up north, so I drove down uh, just this morning to be with you guys. I'm, uh, I was ordained in 2016, and uh, I, love, I love being a priest. I love being a priest. It rocks. It is so good, right? Where my father's at in the room, right? There's one. Okay. All right. Thank you. I do. I love being a priest so much. I, uh, I'm in my second assignment. Um, I'm in year two of my second assignment at a little parish called Sacred Heart of Jesus, located in Wadsworth, Ohio. It is amazing. It's so, so, so good. Little country sort of parish, country vibe, city vibe. You drive five minutes that way, you think you're like enrolling you're like Iowa cornfields. You drive five minutes that way, you're like, this is, there's like big buildings. Like, it's just, it's a very cool, very cool town. So, well, I met Jesus when I was 16 years old. There was a, a girl I had a huge crush on in physics who uh, we'll call her Kristen because that was her name. Um, so Kristen invited me to a youth group event and uh, I, the priest put Jesus out on the altar in the monstrance. I didn't know what any of these things were, but sitting there, kneeling there, 16 years old, like I just, I, I got bowled over, right? It was, it was just a unique, singular grace that the only way to make sense of my life today is the fact that like, I met him that night, you know? So much bigger of a story. I wish I had more time to tell you all of it, but uh, involves a lot of deception and me lying to Kristen and she invited me to this youth group event anyway. Like the Lord just knows. He just knows the bait to put on the hook. Okay, we'll just put it that way, right? That's how he got me in, a girl I had a huge crush on. So, but yeah, I met Jesus when I was 16 and my life has never been the same, right? It's, it's I encountered a love that night that... Um, it relativized every other good that was in my life previous to that. It relativized every other good that I've been pursuing, right? It was as if, if I had nothing else but this, this Jesus, then I was, I was okay, right? I was okay, which was such a strange thing to experience. So, you've been hearing it all day, but we are living through some crazy times, Amen. Yeah, it's, an, it's a very crazy time, not just to be alive, but to be a Catholic, to be called into the vineyard today, right? As Kelly was saying, we were born for such a time as these. It's very exciting, right? St. Maximilian Kolbe, actually, he prophesied, he said that the great saints of this next era of the church, listen to this, the great saints of the next era of the church are going to tower like cedars over the great saints of old. What the heck does that mean, right? Like... <laughs> Like, the saints of our generation, like, look down and like, oh, there's St. Francis, right? Like, but when there's unprecedented evil, there's unprecedented grace, right? So unprecedented opportunities to become a saint. So Jesus established his church to be the means by which the world's cry would be answered. 
And that's why we are here, right? Like, you are not called just, like, as a general person, like, oh, she'll do and he'll do, right? Like, no, you and your particularity are, have been called and you've been assigned little patches of the vineyard, little clusters of grapes where the Lord's saying, you are the one who's going to take care of this. You're going to be part of the answer of the cry for a very particular um, patch of the vineyard, which is really kind of wild. All right, so... We don't have a lot of time in this breakout session. I, I know 45 minutes seems like, that's like a lot of time. When I'm in front of like a group of people, microphone, ambo, notes, like talking about Jesus, like I, we, we could be here for hours. We could be here for hours. So I want to jump right into it. So this is where we're going to start. Let's see if this works. Boom, right there. We're going to start with this quote. This is going to be like our operating principle for this talk. By the way, who has seen the Chosen series? If you're not raising your hand, I'm sure there's confessions offered at some parish near you. It is so unbelievable. It is so unbelievable. I was watching again the other night with a family I'm super close with, and uh, we're all sitting on the couch and like just crying. Season two, y'all who know if you've seen season two, season two, man, it just Nathaniel, holy smokes. All right, all right. Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict, uh, from his encyclical Deus Caritas S. God is love. Being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. This is so, if I could just encourage you to meditate on anything, right? Pope Benedict, Deus Caritas S, chapter, or paragraph one, this, this, is, this is packed with so much potency. A Christian is someone who has encountered the Lord. A Christian is someone who has encountered the Lord, someone who has been encountered by the Lord and who has been affected by the Lord on such a deep level of their being, like their innermost, their heart. All of that has been filled with his life. And now as a result of that encounter, it has generated in me an entirely new way of being in the world called discipleship. Right? That's what a Christian is. That's what Christianity is, right? It's not the well-thought-out you know, program for like, how we're going to make the world a better place. It is the result of people meeting this person. Bare bones, that's the, that's the nugget. That's the goal. If I can shift the analogy, and, and Kelly set me up really perfectly for this. Shift the analogy. A Christian is like, it's going to sound weird. A Christian is like a pregnant woman. You get cravings, and that was supposed to be a laugh line. I don't know. Are you with me? I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, all right. You got to pee at weird times. Uh, you got any pickles? I don't know. All right, I'm celibate. I don't know how this works. All right. No, a Christian is like a pregnant woman. A Christian is like a pregnant woman. This is what I mean. Someone whose very existence, someone whose very bodily existence, their way of being in the world gives evidence that they have encountered someone, someone else on like in the most deeply intimate and personal way possible, right? And they now carry within them a whole new kind of life, right? Think about it. It's, it's kind of weird, but no one ever stops to think about this, right? But when you see a pregnant woman, you know that she has experienced the beauty of deep intimacy with somebody else, namely and ideally her husband, and her very body bears within it the evidence of that intimacy. Right? She's 
bearing within her the evidence of the intimacy, the encounter that has happened, right? A Christian's way of being in the world is meant to bear the evidence that I too have been affected by the beauty of deep intimacy with Jesus. You see the parallel here, right? My life now bears his life into the world, right? The best evangelist, Kelly just said it, the best evangelist is the Blessed Mother, right? In that scene of the, of the visitation, she is pregnant. She is pregnant. This icon is called the Theotokos icon. It appears in the top apps of Byzantine churches, or it's also known as the Platitera icon, that in her womb, he whom the heavens could not contain was contained within her womb. This is Mary pregnant with Christ. This is the spiritual MRI, like, like blueprint, if you will, of how to build a saint. This is what a saint looks like. This is what a saint looks like on the spiritual level. Someone who has been impregnated with Christ, who bears the life of Christ within them. What did St. Paul say? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? Those words in the ancient world, when Paul was saying them, the only, the only way you could have ever said those words rationally is if you were pregnant. Right? If like a dude walking around Philippi in the first century was like, I've got someone living in me. Like, you are crazy. Right? Like, but St. Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Like, that is what a Christian is. Someone who has encountered the Lord and lives this newly generated way of life. This newly generated way of life. All right, so let me ask you this rhetorical question. Do you think that the vast majority of our people, the vast majority of our, like, well-meaning, good people, like the faithful, they show up for Mass, they drop their kids off at our schools, they put their envelopes in our baskets. Do you think the vast majority of our people have encountered the Lord like this? Don't answer. Just keep it in. I think we all know the answer, right? I don't think so. It's a very bizarre situation we find ourselves in in the church, for the church in the 21st century here, that it used to be the case, like the way that the church envisioned like the making disciple thing was that first you'd be evangelized, then you'd be catechized, and then you'd be sacramentalized. We're doing it completely backwards now, right? We are sacramentalizing people, then we're trying to catechize them, and then we're trying to evangelize them. We're doing it backwards. We're doing it backwards. What I see in many ways is the enemy like pulling the same trick. He's got one play. He pulls the same trick over and over again for humanity that he's been doing since the garden, which is the like fear. It's the, it's the cocktail of fear and shame and hiding and getting people to think that God's a taker, that God is a threat to my freedom. God's a threat to my heart. So keep God over there. Keep things casual with Jesus. When I had my conversion in high school, my dad, I got super involved with youth group. My dad was like, whoa, whoa. Like, I'm, I'm glad you're religious now. This is good. Good, like religion, it's a good thing to have in your life. But it's a slice of the pie, right? Like you've got a lot of other slices in the pie. You've got school, friends, work, family, church, right? He's like, don't make it the whole pie. Don't make it the whole pie. Keep things casual. Keep things casual. And again, like, I couldn't put it in words then, but I, I know it now. Like, I met, I met a person, I met a good that was so good that it relativized every other good, that it was like, 
it wasn't a competing piece of the pie. It was the crust. Amen? Mm, everyone knows the crust is the best part too, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what I want to do here for the rest of this breakout really kind of is, is, is just share my heart, right? Um, less of a talk and more of just like me sharing my own kind of journey into this. Because I, I, there, there's some things that are, you know, that you can't really explain didactically. It's just better just to say like, all right, I'm going to and like take a look. All right. So you're like, oh, I don't know. I signed up for that. <laughs> so here we go. So I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly what I was wearing. I remember exactly where I was sitting in the chapel in the seminary. The moment when I was in second theology, right? So I was six years into formation up at the Cleveland Seminary. I remember exactly where I was when I kind of admitted that I had no clue how to actually like relate to Jesus. Six years into the seminary, I, I sitting there, right? I, I, it was a Saturday morning. I was in the chapel trying to pray. I had with me my like seminarian chapel pile of stuff, right? Like I had my Bible, I had my journal. I had my rosary, I had my crucifix, I had my icon. Like, you got your stuff. You bring it with you. Jake knows, right? Like, this is what you do, right? You bring your stuff with you to this, the chapel, right? You set it down next to you because that's what holy people do, right? Yeah, all right. So I have my stuff, and I'm, like, sitting there, and I'm like, okay. I'd sit there and quiet for a little bit in front of the tabernacle. Like, any, any time now, Lord. I'm like... <laughs> Okay, all right, I'm, I'm just going to read a little bit. I'm going to read a little bit. Just, what does Therese have to say? And you're reading through. Then you're like, what am I doing? I'm just reading in front of Jesus. And he's there. Right, so put the book away. Like, okay, here we go. Pray. All right. Hit me. And you're like, could you talk a little louder? Right? Right? Okay. Maybe I'll pray like maybe a little, like a decade of the rosary, right? Rosary's great. Everyone loves rosary. All right, so here we go. Hail Mary, full of grace. And then you realize, you're like, I'm just saying words, right? I'm saying someone else's words. These are good words, but it's not like my words, right? It was powerful. It was a very powerful moment. I remember, like, I was using all these things to ignore Jesus who was sitting in front of me. Like, I remember saying out loud, I have no idea how to actually do this. I have no idea how to actually do this. I felt like I, I had come to the chapel, like I was visiting someone in prison you know how like they got those visiting booths, like one person on one side of the glass, another person on the other side, you pick up the phone, and they pick up the phone, right? I felt like I was coming to visit this prisoner Jesus, and there was no phone on my side of the glass. Like, I had no idea how to, like, there's just nothing. There's nothing. I've been in this place before. Now, like, and again, don't need to raise hands, but, like, I don't think I'm alone in this. I don't think I'm alone in this. I know I'm not alone in this. I'd been in this place before, but I never really owned it. And sitting there, like, I remember just so longing to know him. Right? Because there's a difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus, right? Huge difference. One is necessary for salvation. That's the knowing him one, right? Amassing enough facts about him is not gonna, this is not enough, right? Those who, like, there's, there's gonna be those who say, Lord, Lord, do we not do all these things for you? Depart from me, for I never knew you. Like, I wanted to know him. Like, I wanted to know, I wanted to know him like the, uh, the apostles knew him. I wanted to know his eye color. I wanted to know, like, what his voice and his laugh sounded like. I wanted to know his favorite places to pray, what Nazareth smelled like, what were his favorite kind of chicken wings. Like, I wanted to know all the things, right? 
I wanted to know all those things. But I couldn't figure out how to pick up the phone. And here, here's the thing, though. Like, if, if I was really honest and, like, being totally vulnerable with you, like, there was a huge part of me that I, I wasn't sh- sure that I really wanted. I wasn't really sure that I wanted that level of communication, that level of relationship, because deep down, there was a brokenness in me, like a woundedness in me that I, I was just so afraid of, like, like so many of us. At this point in my life, my mid-20s, I had amassed just a reservoir of, of pain from like self-inflicted wounds, sins that I had chosen, sins that I had fallen into, just deep patterns of sin. There was so much shame and regret and brokenness. And I, I like, there was this piece of my heart, like this hardened exterior to like in this deepest of places that like no matter what kind of affirmation came in or love came in, it eventually would like reach this bottom hard part and then it would just like deflect off, right? So like a lot of us, I became like an affirmation addict, right? But it wasn't just all that. Like it wasn't just my sinfulness. Like it was lies that I had internalized. Like things that I had believed for so long, lies about my identity, about my worth, how people see and regard me, all that stuff like made me unlovable, right? If I only could just pretend to be good, that's where I got, right? I think that's where a lot of people get, that appearances become the most important thing, right? Because we're just convinced that, man, if you really knew me, like I know me, like if you really saw me, man, you just, like you would, you would walk the other way. And so we become addicted to appearing good, appearing holy, right? So making a long story short, that next summer, I made my way to a place in Omaha called the, called the Institute for Priestly Formation, 10-week-long spirituality intensive. And there I met a deacon. And I read these words that he wrote. He said this. You, insert your name, I'll put mine. You, Patrick, are thirsty. And I, the Christ, am your thirst quenched. Do you want your thirst slaked? Or do you want to only go on drinking and tasting and searching? Or even hiding, running, arguing, I am the Sabbath rest. Let me enter you. Do you want to be known? Oh, man. Like, whew. I I remember exactly where I was when I read that, too. Also in a chapel. I remember just being like, yeah, man, I am am so thirsty. I was. I was so thirsty for love and for affirmation. I was so thirsty to know, like really know that I was good. To have someone who had the perspective, like this divine perspective that could see all the way into my heart. Because that's the problem with human beings. That like no one else can look into the depth of your soul. There is a sovereignty to your heart that no one else can gaze into. I wanted to hear from Jesus that I was good. I wanted to hear from that highest of authorities, right? I was so thirsty for that. And here's Jesus saying like, like he's saying to you this afternoon, like I, I am that thirst that restless search in your heart, that unstoppable, unquenchable, like yearning for love. I am that, but slaked, quenched. That's who I am. Like, I am the one that your heart is looking for. You've been looking for me this whole time. And then here's this question, and it's not condemning. It's the question he's asking you right now. It's an invitation. Do do you want your thirst slaked? In other words, do you want to begin tasting the satisfaction that comes about when you really let yourself be loved that deep? 
It's just like the time that Jesus asked that man who'd been lying by the pool of Bethsaida for 38 years, right? He asked him the question. A man who's paralyzed. Do you want to be well? Like, that's how much the Lord respects our hearts. That's the tenderness of Jesus. That's how much he respects and, like, honors our hearts. He's not just going to barge in there. So often we just say, like, no. Honestly, no, it's more this. Like, no, Jesus, I'm fine. Like we say to each other all the time, right? It's our favorite social liturgy. How you doing? Great. Uh, man, like mom's sick, cat peed on the carpet, kids are going to mess. I uh, probably going to get fired from work, but I'm great. Yeah. That's what we do all the time. How you doing? Fine. I'm good. I'm fine. Jesus asks us, how you doing? Fine. Forgetting that it's Jesus who's asking, right? Like, no, don't worry about me, Jesus. I've got, I've got plenty of ways to numb my heart. I've got, I've got a lot of things. Right? I've got a lot of things to hide from my pain. I've got a lot of things that keep me distracted from my past, right? I've got a lot of ways that I can keep busy, right? We, we love our busyness. We really do. We complain about it, but we wouldn't know what to do if we weren't. It is, it is our favorite narcotic as Americans, because we are so alienated and afraid of our hearts. We're so afraid of it. And he says, let me enter you. Let me enter you. Again, and I'm saying this with great reverence. Again, a Christian. A Christian is someone whose heart has been impregnated in the deepest of ways with the love of Jesus. And he's saying, let me enter you. You know what your heart is, right? Like what a womb is in a woman's body, it's an icon of the heart. It's the place that exists in me that's made to house another. It's a, it's a designed poverty. It's an emptiness that's awaiting the presence of another. That's what your heart is. And your heart is all of that broken junky junk. All of that. It's the stuff that you like keep buried. And he's saying, do you want to let me enter you? Do you want to be known? Do you want to be known at your depths? St. Augustine said that the deepest yearning in the human heart is to know and to be known. To know and to be known. Right? And of course, we're talking about the kind of interpersonal knowing. You know, um, English, we only have the one word to know, right? But other Romance languages, you've got Subjective, or you've got interpersonal and, and objective knowing, right? Just like in the beginning, Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore him a son. Okay, again, I'm a celibate priest, but I think there is some deeper knowing than like, I know facts about you, right? Amen? Yeah? Okay. That's a deep kind of knowing. It's the kind of knowing that's immensely vulnerable, right? So he asks, like, let me enter you. And you're like, enter me? Like, but like, how far? And, and, and into what? Right, like how, how searching is your gaze? How penetrating is your gaze? How, how, how thorough will you be? Like, are there any parts of my heart that I can just like, like just section off? You know, like, Lord, you can take a look at all of this, but like, you don't need to go down there. That's the basement. Like, it's gross, right? And he says, like, well, do you want to be known? 
Like, yeah. And he says, well, then I got to be in there all the way. You got to let me in all the way. But we're afraid. That's the thing. There's so much fear. And for good reason. We're not insane for balking at this. Because we were born behind enemy lines. We're born in this fallen world. That's what this is. Right? C.S. Lewis described this world as the fallen world. Our hearts learn survival tactics really quickly. From very early ages, we learn how to protect ourselves from pain. Like how to not really let people get super close. How to keep them at bay. Like we're born into a family line that's broken. Just like every other family. It's broken and wounded. There's this heritage of sin. We got moms and dads who weren't perfect. And like those of you who are moms and dads, you know this, but you're not perfect. Right? We're born into family lines that are wounded and broken, right? And we come into this world with hearts that are looking for the Father, looking for perfect love. Hearts that were made to live in Eden. But guess what? We don't live in Eden anymore, right? We have hearts that, were, that are built for perfect love, and God gives us a family that is broken, And so we take our yearning for perfect love to a mom and dad who do the best they can, but because they're not God, they can't love us with the love of God. And so we have hearts that that just get wounded. It's not outside of God's plan. This is all part of the providence of how he eventually draws us back to himself. He puts us on this quest, right? Come find the real father that you're looking for, right? So don't think this is not part of his plan. It is, but it doesn't change the fact that we have hearts that get wounded, They can't love us with God's love, and we come into this world that's built for Eden, and we aren't in Eden anymore, like I said. So this desire to be loved perfectly, this desire for friendship that doesn't end, this desire for, like, I never want to be lied to, I never want to be made fun of, I never want to be, like, the butt of any joke. Those are not stupid or childish desires. That's real. That is a longing for the Father. That's a longing for the kingdom. We've just taught ourselves to, to diminish and make fun of the things that matter the most. We're like, that's ridiculous. Like, just suck it up. Toughen up. No. We just learned that love is risky and having an exposed heart is risky in this fallen world. You're going to suffer pain and rejection. So we steal ourselves right behind these impenetrable walls. We learned that vulnerability is just so scary. So like when we go to social settings, right? We don't really know how to interact with each other, right? So yeah, like, I mean, I do a lot of work with men's groups, right? So like every men's ministry thing has to be like dudes and steaks, right? Like, or men and wood chopping or dudes and beer, right? Like, like, it's just, this is how it is. Because we don't know how to just be. We don't know how to just be. That's why we lubricate all of these social situations with booze. Because it makes us vulnerable. It's because we, we want to be vulnerable. We just don't know how to do it. So we medicate to get to that place. And then what happens is you fall in love with someone, right? And they get really close to your heart. And then you get married to them. And that's, you know, wonderful and terrifying, right? Because they're just there all the time, right? So I'm told by one buddy, when he got married, it was a few, a few months after his wedding, I was like, so how's it going, right? Because they didn't live together beforehand. How's it going? He's like, dude, it's great. But man, she's just like, we were, we were FaceTiming, he's just like, she's just like right here, like <laughs> all the time. <laughs> it sounds great. <laughs> yeah. 
chose the better part. Anyway. <laughs> as we age, as we grow up in this fallen world, surrounded by wounded people who are wounding people, because that's how it works, we learn to cope with all of this with sin. Sin, like we all have our favorite coping mechanisms. We all have our favorite hiding places. They're, they're masks, our sins, right? They're the places that we run to. And sin, it always gives birth to shame. That's the first fruit of the fall, right? The immediate effect of them grasping and hiding is shame, right? They cover themselves. And shame is the enemy's favorite plaything. Shame is so different than guilt, right? Guilt says, I've done something wrong for which I need to repent or correct from, right? Shame, on the other hand, says, like, you are something bad, there's something irredeemable, fundamentally wrong with you. There's something utterly rejectable about you. Right? And because we have like, learned in this fallen world that even though people say that they love us unconditionally, we know there's this, this deep fear that says, like, but yeah, but like, <sighs> if you saw the things, if you knew the things, if you really were in there like I'm in there, like, assuredly, you would just step back. But here's the problem, right? If I'm only ever loved when I'm wearing a mask, then I know that I'm not really loved. If we are only ever loved when we're wearing masks, then we know that we're not really loved. And the problem is we come to Jesus in this exact same posture, right? And we think maybe, like, God, I hope, like, maybe he's going to be the one who, like, looks at me differently than I look at me, or, or, or maybe it's, it's worse. Maybe he's going to be the one to finally condemn me for all of that brokenness in me. We're just not sure, so we're stuck in this place. Maybe, maybe you didn't even know that you were stuck in that place until, like, right now. Stuck between wanting to be known and being so afraid of being known, right? So making a long story short, I came to IPF, and I kept consistently hearing this, what I can only describe as a gentle knock, not like a physical knock, not like a, but just like this knock on the outside of my heart. Jesus, like it was, he was saying, hey, can I come in? It wasn't an angry pounding. It wasn't like a SWAT team on the outside of the door. It was like, hey, Patrick, like it's okay. I know, I know you're scared. And like, I will stand out here as long as it takes. Like my knuckles will bleed and, and, until you're ready. I'm in no rush. Like, that's something you need to hear about Jesus right now. Like, Jesus is never saying to you, like, like do this now. That's not him. He has this immense patience. Immense patience, especially for your heart. He's a lover. And what he's always doing, he's always just wooing us, right? He's wooing us through the beauty of the liturgy, through the beauty of creation, everything around, like, all the beautiful things that you find attractive, all of that is, it's the bridegroom. It's Jesus. Gently just like blowing on the ember of your heart, like softening the ground. Let me in. Let me in. The enemy wanted me to hear that knock like a SWAT team, right? But it's Jesus. Like the bridegroom in the Song of Songs, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? That's his voice. Open to me, my sister, my bride, my darling. Open to me, open to me. Trust that I won't hurt you. Like that's why at the bottom of the image of divine mercy, Jesus instructed St. Faustina to write those words. 
It's not Jesus, have mercy on me. It's not Jesus, be merciful. It's Jesus, I trust in you. Because the path to the intimacy that we long for comes about through trust, through vulnerability, like the trust required to open yourself to let someone in. Like I feel like Jesus' whole mission could be summed up by like, in the phrase, like God's, God's not like that. God's not like that. Like, he's going to be mad at me when I show him what I've done. No, God's not like that. He's going to tell me to try harder, right? No, God's not like that. He's going he's gonna to finally run out of patience with me, right? Like, there's going to be a limit. Like, I'm going to run out of chances, right? He's not, he's not like that. He honors every part of your heart. He doesn't laugh at any part of it. He reverences every chapter. Like those littlest of things that you tell yourself, man, I'm like 40 years old, 50 years old. Like I, like I should be over this by now. Like why am I still like, why does that still hurt me? You know, like, like when your favorite stuffed animal got left at the park and no one went back for it and you cried for days, right? Or when you were constantly picked on at school, like playing games at recess and you'd like, you couldn't figure out how to throw a ball or swing a bat and you just got made fun of, right? Or like it was your body, right? You had the wrong nose, or you were too chubby, or you had the weird hair, or you didn't have the right clothes. All of those parts. When that boy you liked asked that other girl out, right? When your older brother, when your older sister refused to let you into their world, and how exclusion, like how, how much you felt excluded and rejected. Or like when your parents got divorced when you were little, and you were you were told like, like you need to be okay with this. When you were told to lie that, like, you just got to be okay with this and you just weren't. Or when that new baby came along in your new blended family and you felt replaced and there was no one you could talk to about that. Like, these are real places in our hearts that Jesus wants to get into. These are the deep places. See, the reason I'm talking about all of this is that if we're going to encounter him in a way that changes everything, if we're going to encounter him in a way that's real, like, we have to encounter him through deep vulnerability. The encounter happens with Jesus today in the heart. And the heart is a sovereign place that he can only get into if you give him access to it. Right? If you open it up, if we let him in by taking the masks off, right? And we take the masks off by allowing ourselves to be seen. And we allow ourselves to be seen by, like, articulating, no filtering, but just sharing with him all the details, all the sludge that's in there. Remember the scene where Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb? He says, roll away the stone. What does Martha say? Lord, he's been in there for four days. There's going to be a stench. Guys, I mean, our hearts, y'all, like, my heart, I'm just thinking about my heart. I'm just talking about my heart. There's a stench. There's a stench. Like, I know we have, like, these, these adorable manger scenes, right? Y'all know it didn't look like that, right? Okay? Like, there wasn't like a nice railing, <laughs> perfect golden hay on the bottom. It was a cave. And it was cold and damp and dark and it smelled to high heaven. It was where animals slept. He's not afraid of the stench. He's not afraid of the stench. The bridegroom says to the bridegroom, let me see your face. 
Let me hear your voice. Like, that's what a really honest confession is. And we don't sugarcoat anything. And I'll tell you as a priest, like I know when people come in and they're treating this as like a sacramental laundromat versus like chemotherapy. There's a difference. Like someone who's saying, yeah, I've just stained my soul. Just put the tie to go pen on there. Wave your hand, whatever you got to do, Father. Versus the people who come in and just bear the brutal honesty, the brokenness, the woundedness of their heart. See, what I discovered when I, like, so I had a counselor that I was talking to that those weeks when I was at IPF and my spiritual director, some really incredible people the Lord put in my life. People that I could get spiritually naked before. Like to be utterly seen all the way. When I opened that door, when I like finally let, when I answered that knocking on the other side of the door, what I, what I was shocked to discover, oh, we're gonna skip that. What I was shocked to discover was that the one on the other side of the door was the infant Christ. Like God meets us in our littleness by becoming little. He meets us in our poverty by becoming poor. And he meets us in our weakness by becoming weak. Like nothing is beneath him. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. The kind of encounter that changes everything. The kind of encounter that sets you up to be the kind of evangelist that actually changes the world. Is like, like stop thinking in terms of, man, I got to read more Jeff Caven's books. I got to read more Scott Hahn. Like I love so much I got to learn. That comes later. Like the first thing is like our hearts, y'all. Our hearts need to be opened. We need to get really honest and vulnerable before him. As one theologian says, to suffer the gaze of Christ, to really let him look at you. I'm going to read this quote. This is from um, Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. Kindergarten was very hard for him. So... um, There's so many words in my name. (laughs) He said this. Holiness consists in being perfect and having all your crap together. Just kidding. He didn't say that. Okay. (laughs) He said, holiness consists in enduring God's glance. It may appear mere passivity to withstand the look of an eye. But everyone knows how much exertion is required when this occurs in an essential encounter. You ever, you ever like stop and just like, not a staring contest, but like a gazing moment in someone's eyes. Like there's a big difference, you know, between going to the ophthalmologist and the doctor looking in your eyes versus your spouse gazing in your eyes, right? An essential encounter Our glances mostly brush by each other indirectly, or they turn quickly away, or they give themselves not personally, but only socially. So too do we constantly flee from God into a distance that is theoretical, rhetorical, sentimental, aesthetic, or most frequently, pious. That's our favorite hiding spot as good Catholics. I'm just going to bury myself beneath a mountain of rosaries. Or we flee from him to external works. And yet the best thing would be to surrender one's naked heart to the fire of this all-penetrating glance. 
the heart would then itself have to catch fire. Such enduring would be the opposite of a Stoic's hardening his face. It would be yielding, declaring oneself beaten, capitulating, entrusting oneself, casting oneself into him. It would be childlike loving, since for children, the glance of the father is not painful. With wide open eyes, they look into his. Little Therese, great little Therese, she could do it. To look at him who is looking at you. Friends, like to endure, the God, to, to endure God's gaze. To let him look at you. Right? To let him see you. To let yourself being seen. That's the thing that changes everything. To see yourself being seen. And to see what's in his eyes. There are tears in those eyes. Not tears of disappointment, but just tears of delight. He cherishes you. Like there are parts of your life that he is weeping over because no one else is weeping over it. You've just told little version of you, just keep up, keep going, move on. And he's like, I'm still really sad about that thing in third grade. Like I'm still weeping for you. He is compassion. Like that's the encounter that changes everything. When you see yourself being seen, like we evangelize from that place. Like the church, friends, like the church has existed for 2,000 years not because of great preaching, like or great music or great architecture, or great popes. It's existed for 2,000 years because men and women of every age have really encountered Jesus, like the real Jesus, the living Jesus. Because he's not a fact of, like, history locked away, you know? Like, no one can encounter Abraham Lincoln now. (laughs) You can't encounter George Washington. You can't encounter, you know, Ramses III. But like Jesus is encounterable. And people have encountered him. They've been vulnerable enough to like to let themselves be loved in such a way that it's changed everything. Right? A Christian is like to be a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea. It's the result of an encounter with a person. And like it's the impregnation of the deepest parts of your heart with the beauty of his heart. It's the beauty. It's the beauty of his eyes. It's the beauty of his words. It's the beauty of his heart that gets in there and it generates a whole new way of life. A Christian way of life. If we commit to every other evangelization strategy and technique and we don't do this, it's just going to fail. Right? Like the first apostles, after ascension, after the Lord ascends, they had nothing at their disposal. There's 12 of them. 11, right? Judas, we're going to talk about it, but Judas was gone, right? They had no money. They had, like, no positions of influence. What they had were hearts that were on fire. They were impregnated with the fire. That's what changed the world. They were burning. 
They were on fire. And that only happens when we are vulnerable. Oh, that's it. That is everything. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God Almighty, your Son Jesus. Your Son Jesus is the divine bridegroom. He is love itself. He is mercy itself. And in his eyes are everything our hearts are looking for. Lord, we adore you and we seek to receive you more deeply into our hearts for you are running towards us with all the compassion, all the tenderness, all the beauty of the most holy trinity. Lord, give us the courage to open the deep recesses of our hearts to you Give us the courage to open our pain to you, to open our memories to you. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to bring up in our minds those memories you want to enter into. Lord, set us on fire that we might be luminaries in the midst of this world that is so desperate and looking for you. And again, we place ourselves into your womb, Mary, the place from which all good things come. As we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. That's what I have for you.